What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Well, the rapture is one of those things that you must be prepared for in order to participate in. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind. That's where we get the title for the whole series. And our passion has always been we want people to be prepared. And because when, as Jerry says, when he shouts our name, we're going to be out of here. But if your name can't be shouted, you're going to stay here. And then you go through all the traumas of the tribulation period. That's Tim LaHaye, co-author of the Left Behind series, talking about what he believes the end of the world will begin with, and that is a secret rapture of the church. Is that teaching found in the Bible? Is it found in church history? Did Jesus teach a secret rapture? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Dr. Jordan Cooper joins us to talk about rapture theology. We'll spend some time with Dr. Pavi Rasanen, a member of the Finnish parliament, discussing an attempt on the prosecutor to appeal her double acquittal to Finland's Supreme Court and accusing her of hate crimes. Then we'll spend some time with Dr. Jonathan Connor in our series, part 19 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Just and Sinner, President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, The Doctrine of God, and creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Problems with the Rapture. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back, Todd. What is typically this teaching that is referred to as the rapture? Very popular, but what is it? It is, yeah. So the teaching of the rapture is a part of a, a broader system of theology called dispensationalism. And within that system, the rapture is an event that is supposed to occur prior to the second coming of Christ. And essentially within that system, there are kind of two comings of Christ in the future. And the first one of those what is called the rapture. Sometimes it's called a secret coming of Christ. What that means is that there is a, a non-visible coming of Christ. In other words, prior to the actual end of the age seven years prior to the end of all things, Jesus is going to return for his people. And those who are Christians, those who have faith in Christ, are going to rise up to meet Jesus in the air and will be taken away from the earth. And then following that, there is this seven-year period that they call the seven-year tribulation, in which there is all sorts of disaster and wrath upon the earth prior to Jesus's then full coming in the open with the blow of a trumpet and then all people arise and then there's the day of, of judgment following that in that system there's also then a thousand year millennial reign of christ so the system posits that there are many comings of christ that have not yet happened that we are now still waiting for how does it just so we understand how does this function within the system of dispensationalism i've often said the secret rapture is necessary in dispensationalism because they have displaced the redemption of Christ as the center of all scripture and theology with 
God's plan for ethnic Israel. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's a bit difficult to give a brief description of dispensationalism because it's such a complicated system, which is why when you look at dispensational teachings, they often have all sorts of complicated charts and <laughs> and things that they put together to explain exactly what happens when, because it's a very systematized view of what happens in history when and what's already happened and what we're waiting for. But if we could boil down dispensationalism essentially to one central idea, it would be exactly what you said, that there is this distinction between the people of God in Israel and the people of God that is the church. And so dispensationalism has the foundational assumption that the promise that God gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis, that was then you know reiterated throughout Abraham's life and throughout the Old Testament, was not just a promise of the coming Messiah and the salvation of the world, but was ultimately a promise for the flourishing of ethnic Israel, of those who would be the physical, literal descendants of Abraham. So within that dispensational system, the real center of history is the nation of Israel. And that's true both throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Within that system, then, the prophecies that you see throughout all of the prophets, say someone like Ezekiel who prophesies about the new temple that's going to come. Christians have tended historically to understand those promises as really promises of the new heavens and new earth, promises that are not really just toward ethnic Israel, that are much broader than that in their application and redemptive history. But the dispensationalists believe that those are literally to be fulfilled by the people of Israel meaning ethnic Israel, as well as the actual physical land of Israel as we see it today. So what happens in that system within the New Testament is that Jesus essentially comes to bring redemption to the Jews. And in at least one form of dispensationalism, Jesus comes to offer the kingdom to the Jews. They reject it. And then Jesus's death on the cross and the bringing in of the Gentiles was what some have actually called a plan B, or they've also referred to it as really a parenthesis in the story of Israel. And so the church then really just becomes this parenthesis. We're kind of in this little gap that is in the middle of what really is the primary story of the Bible, which is the story of the ethnic people of Israel. So you're right to say that the rapture is an essential part of this, because what the rapture does really is get us out of the way so that those final promises toward ethnic Israel really can be fulfilled. And then the millennial reign of Christ is then a further way in which those prophecies specifically for ethnic Israel can then be fulfilled. So you say that it's unbiblical, but let's start with the fact that the teaching of the rapture, you say, is not historic. What do you mean? Yeah, so the idea of the rapture is a very new teaching. And there have been some attempts to try to find it in history prior to the 19th century. And there was some spiritual Franciscan in the medieval period that, that some people have pointed to as kind of a precursor to the idea of the rapture. But by and large, the rapture as any kind of prominent way of reading the text of scripture really first shows up in the 19th century among a group known as the Brethren. And this was a group in England. John Nelson Darby, born in 1800, he was the real architect of this notion of the rapture, and as well as the entirety of the dispensational system as a whole. So the system of dispensationalism as a whole, as Darby 
taught it essentially said that God works differently in these different ages of history that are called dispensations. So you have many different dispensations and different dispensationalists divide those dispensations even further, depending on who the person is. And some have lessened it. So however many there are, there are these different time periods in history. And we have to understand that God works totally uniquely in each of these time periods in history. But as part of that whole system, Darby proposed that there was going to be this period of seven-year tribulation. And prior to that period, the church age or the church dispensation came to an end. So in order for that church dispensation to come to an end, the church has to get out of the picture. And so that is where the rapture becomes an essential part of that system. Now, Darby really is the one that initiated this idea of the rapture, but it didn't become very popular outside of the circles known as the brethren. And you have different groups of the brethren, the Plymouth brethren, the exclusive brethren. It didn't become popular outside of the circles until the early 20th century where there was a very popular Bible that went into publication called the Schofield Reference Bible, still very often used. And it's been said that those who use the Schofield Reference Bible treated the notes in the Bible almost (laughs) with the same kind of reverence that they did the actual text of Scripture itself. And so the Schofield Reference Bible was a very early, what we might refer to today as a kind of study Bible. And that took things from a dispensational approach. So the popularity of the Schofield Bible really is the thing that spread the idea of the rapture in any significant way, really at all. So in terms of it being this popular teaching within the church, it's been hardly over a hundred years that it's had that kind of popular status. Given the fact that it is an unknown teaching, why does that, prior to John Darby, why does that raise a red flag for you initially? Sure. If you're looking at some kind of reading of scripture, especially one like the dispensational system as a whole, and I know we're talking about the rapture specifically, a system that is so central to how you understand God's revelation and so central to understand who the church is and what the role of Israel is. And you look at the history of the church and say, no one understood the text this way until this period of time, so much later, then it should raise some red flags because it should cause you to say, well, if all of these faithful Christians have lived for so many centuries, if God is guiding providentially his church and leading his church into truth, not speaking about it in the sense of some kind of infallibility in church tradition, but we recognize that the spirit is leading the church and is guiding the church. And if we say with all of that time and with the Spirit's work and all of those faithful readers of the text, if no one really came up with this system, except for maybe one or two (laughs) obscure figures that maybe you can find that might kind of fit into the system, then you really have to question your own wisdom in coming to the text. Is it really the case that Darby or yourself, you know, you really understand the text in such a unique and wise way that no one really understood the text before that. You know, it really should cause us to pause. The second reason is Luke 17. What's there that speaks against the secret rapture of the church? Yeah, sure. So Luke 17 is a text that is often used within these conversations. And in verse 26, 
the text says this, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was in the days of Lot. And so you have this description of how bad the days are going to be just prior to the coming of the Son of Man. And then at the end of this, you have a statement that is often used as a defense of the rapture from dispensationalists. So this shows up starting in verse 34, where Jesus says this, I tell you in the night, there will be two men in bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one will be taken and the other left. So the way that this is often understood in the context of a rapture, it is believed that this idea of one being taken and one being left refers to an individual being taken as in they are brought into the presence of Christ. They are raptured. They are brought into the presence of the Son of Man. So the one who was taken is one who was now with Christ, and then the others are left. So this is seen as proof of this idea that there is going to be this kind of ascending of some people into heaven for this first of the second comings of Jesus. Now, the problem with that particular reading of this text is that when you look at the analogy, and not just really analogy, but the biblical precedent for what Jesus is pointing to here, he talks about the the flood of Noah. So the days of the end are going to be like the days of Noah. Now, if you think about the question of in the times of Noah with the flood, well, who was taken and who was left? Well, those who were taken were those who were taken in the flood waters. And those who were left on the earth were Noah and his family. In other words, those who were saved. So the way that the picture that Jesus is using from the Old Testament relates to what he's talking about here is the opposite of how those proponents of the rapture read the text. So rather than the one being taken being the one who is brought into the sky, the one being taken is the one who was taken within God's wrath, and the others are left on the earth or left to flourish, as happened in the days of Noah. And so there's nothing within that text at all that says something about meeting Jesus in the air. So if you take those three verses out of context there at the end of that chapter and then read it through the lens of the rapture, you can certainly understand how you would read it in that sense. But when you recognize that there is no reference to anything like a rapture in the text and then look at the overall context of what he's pointing to here, the reading of the text that would point toward a rapture really does start to fall apart. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He is director of Just and Sinner. When we come back, we'll go to the text that's most often cited as support for Secret Rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue in Titus with qualifications for elders, rebuke them sharply, sound doctrine, grace of God, and the washing of regeneration. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org 
or your favorite podcast provider. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. A voice in the wilderness of American evangelicalism, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking about rapture theology. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Dr. Cooper, let's go to the text that is most often cited as kind of the open and closed case for a secret rapture, and that's First Thessalonians four. Yeah, sure. So First Thessalonians four is a text that deals with the second coming of Christ, a very famous text, and there are some issues that the Thessalonians are facing that Paul is responding to here. There are some rumors that are happening here that they're hearing that Jesus may be already returned and they missed it. In other words, there's a lot of confusion about what exactly the second coming of Christ means in the Thessalonian church. So because of that, St. Paul clarifies some of the specifics about what is going to happen at the return of Christ. So this section that is often used here starts really in verse 15. We'll start reading in verse 15 here. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So this reference here is often used in writings about the rapture and preaching about the rapture, particularly this phrase that we are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this idea of the rapture includes this ascending of the human 
body of the faithful into the air to actually meet with Jesus in the air. And again, if you read that singular verse out of context, you can certainly see how it would seem to support this notion of the rapture. Now, the problem here is that the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 here does not seem to present this as some kind of separate event from the second coming of Christ as a whole. So in verse 16, we see that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, and then with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The point is that what this instance that we see here certainly seems to be something that is very loud, something that is very visible. This does not appear to be some kind of quiet coming of Jesus where most people on the earth just see perhaps if they have a family member who is a Christian floating up into the air. This is language of shouting, of getting people's attention, the trumpet calls. So we don't have any idea here that there is some kind of secret rapture. There is a meeting with the Lord in the air. I mean, the text certainly says that, but there's no reason to believe that that is anything other than the visible singular second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead on the earth. I, well, years ago, interviewed Tim LaHaye, author of the very popular Left Behind series, which further made the rapture teaching standard in American evangelicalism. And I asked him about that very point, that 1 Thessalonians is describing an extremely public event, an event that cannot be missed. And his response was, well, yeah, there'll be a trumpet call, there'll be the shout, but those are going to be like a dog whistle that only Christians can hear. The rest of the world won't actually hear those things. What do you make of his attempt to fit the secret rapture together with the primary text that he wanted to cite? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the way you would have to deal with it, (laughs) but it certainly seems to be a bit of a stretch. I mean, there's nothing that in any of those texts that implies that the loudness of the trumpet call would be only for the ears of Christians. The entire context certainly seems to be this is a worldwide event. And this is an event of the declaration of Christ's coming. I mean, what's the point of the trumpets? You know, the point of the trumpets is not just for the Christians who are seeing Jesus in the air. The point of the trumpets is so that everyone pays attention to what is happening here. So you really, it's really special pleading, I think, to come to that conclusion based on the text. But I suppose that's the only way you can deal with the text is just to kind of invent something that's not actually there in order to explain that, well, maybe it says that, but it doesn't really mean that, or it only means that for a certain group of people, even though the text nowhere implies anything like that. What do you find in 1 Corinthians 15 that speaks against the error of the rapture? Yeah, so 1 Corinthians 15, this is the great you know, resurrection chapter. This is Paul's explanation of the resurrection of Jesus, as well as just the you know, general resurrection of the dead that is going to come. Now, what we see here in the text of 1 Corinthians, we see first this explanation of Jesus's resurrection. We see then the importance of the resurrection and the confession of the resurrection of the dead as there were people that were denying the physical nature of the resurrection of Jesus. And then at the end of this, Paul goes on to talk about what is the nature of the resurrection body And then in verse 50, he starts this section where he is now kind of summarizing all of this is to say, 
what is going on at the resurrection? What's the goal of the resurrection? Why does this all matter so much? And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and is mortal, has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And, you know, we, we could go on a little, little further through the rest of the chapter, but what we see here is something that is really a repeated theme in the New Testament, that the only blowing of the trumpet that we see is followed by this immediate end of all things. And so it says here that it's in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, there is going to be an immediate last trumpet, the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. All of these events that we're talking about here with final judgment and the blowing of the trumpet all happen at the same exact time. And that is the consistent testimony of the text of the New Testament. So when you get somebody like, you know, Tim LaHaye reading these other texts, like the, the first Thessalonians text that we just looked at, uh, what they have to do is kind of create this, well, there must be two trumpet calls, right? There's one trumpet call that's only something that believers hear that is the rapture. And then there is a second trumpet call, you know, seven years later, that is the return of Jesus. And there is just no reason in the text to differentiate those two things. And especially when we have a text like 1 Corinthians 15 that has so many just clear, explicit explanations of what the resurrection is all about, Paul does not take a step back and say, well, there are a lot of blowing, there are multiple blowings of the trumpet. He just lays everything out as if this is one singular event. The trumpet call happens, we meet the Lord in the air, and we then have final judgment. It's instantaneous. Could we further add, maybe combining your first point and this point, that the creeds of the church, the historic creeds of the church, all treat Christ's return in exactly that way as one event that has many elements to it, but certainly occurring as one event and not multiple events over time? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Yeah, I think the, the way that the ancient creeds of the church do speak about the return of Jesus is pretty unified it is understood that Christ comes and then there is the resurrection of the dead. There aren't all of these other events that happen to separate that out in some way. We're talking about rapture theology with Dr. Jordan Cooper of Just and Sinner. He's creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Problems with the Rapture. When we return, did Jesus teach the rapture? What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org.
Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. This is LCMS missionary, Pastor John Bombaro. The Coeur area in North Idaho has a new confessional parish committed to the Lutheran liturgy, excellence in biblical teaching, and faithful pastoral care. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church of Hayden, Idaho, meets at 9 a.m. for our Augsburg Academy and 10 a.m. for the Divine Service of Holy Communion, at which we encounter the real voice and real presence of Jesus Christ. For our location or to join the growing family of Lutherans dedicated to the sacraments, confessions, and historic liturgy, Visit BlessedSacramentLutheranChurch.com. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities. And experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. Ad Crucem is your one-stop online store for Christian greeting cards, jewelry, artwork, posters, church banners, confirmation gifts, and more. AdCrucem.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. We're talking about rapture theology. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Dr. Cooper, your final point is that Jesus doesn't teach a secret rapture. Yeah, so Jesus doesn't seem to teach it anywhere in, in the teachings of Jesus. And this is not just because Jesus's teachings are obscure or something like that. Now, certainly, we can't expect that Jesus speaks about everything. There are things in the New Testament that are taught by Paul or Peter or John that are not maybe directly in the words of Jesus in the Gospels. But Man, if there's one thing Jesus talks a lot of, about and gives us more detail about than anything else, it's his return. You know, we looked at Luke 17. Matthew chapter 24 has an extensive discussion of, of the end and what is going to happen prior to the coming of the Son of Man. And so Jesus has numerous—so Luke records that same discourse 
and add some different details that Jesus gave there. So Jesus has a lot to say in, in these discourses about the coming of the Son of Man and what is to be expected. And within the words of Jesus, we do have language of the Son of Man comes in glory, the Son of Man comes uh, to bring forth you know, final judgment. Again, you have this language of the suddenness of his coming. You have the, you know, it's unexpected, like a thief in the night, and that the suddenness also seems to be kind of instantaneous, right? It's the singular event. So with all of the things that Jesus says about his return, there isn't anything that even really implies at all that there could be some multiple returnings of Jesus. I mean, everything seems to connect simply to the fact that when the Son of Man returns, he will return in his glory and he will judge the living and the dead. And that is the end of all things. His parables, one way in which he teaches, apart from direct discourse about his second coming, all have that element of suddenness and a single event. The bridegroom simply arrives. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the parables of Jesus so often do focus on his second coming. And this is one of the major themes of the teaching of Jesus. And it would be quite odd with all of the, as you said, the suddenness that really shows up, the immediacy that is there in nearly every parable that speaks about his second coming. It would be very odd for him to just not mention this other coming that happens prior to that visible coming. What is the danger of holding, because someone might say, well, okay, the rapture isn't in the Bible, but it's really kind of a harmless speculation or a harmless error. What's the danger of this error? Yeah, I think there there are a couple different dangers that show up with this error. The one of those is there is an idea that is involved in a lot of rapture theology that God will not allow his church to suffer. And so the reason why the church has to disappear you know, in the rapture is because they can't face a world of suffering under the wrath of God. And I just simply say the church does and will face suffering. It always will. And when you look at the book of Revelation, which speaks about this language of tribulation, you know, th those who have come out of the great tribulation, as the text says, these are the suffering martyrs that have that live through the history of the church. So it is the understanding biblically that this great tribulation is the entire church age. So in some ways, the dispensational theology of the rapture can get us to be a bit maybe unrealistic about the facts of suffering, thinking that, well, we're not going to have to suffer because God loves us and, and he won't let us suffer. And that's just not the reality of living in a sinful world. But really the biggest problem I think is with the dispensational system as a whole. And so the rapture is only one particular part of this broader system. And the issue with the system is really, and you indicated this with one of your questions earlier, is that it really takes the focus of scripture off of Christ and places it on the people of Israel. It makes the Old Testament often kind of irrelevant to the life of the Christian. And it does really what all false teachings do, which is takes the focus off of Christ crucified and puts it on something else. And that, I think, is the biggest issue of the rapture is, though there are issues with the rapture itself, it's the system that it comes out of and from, which is exactly the opposite of the way that the New Testament tells us to read the Old Testament and how Jesus himself teaches us to read the Old Testament. Not that God doesn't do wonderful things through the physical people of Israel. He does. But that the Old Testament is not just Israel's book. 
it is part of the church's book, the book of Christ and his redemption that was always intended to be universal in its scope, that Christ was always intended to come to save the entire world. And Israel was a part of that plan, but ultimately the focus of scripture is Jesus himself. I've had uh, several former dispensationalists tell me, and so I, I believe it may be more common than not, that in their times of believing in the rapture, it caused them more anxiety. It's not a big deal, but it caused them more anxiety and more doubt of their own salvation than offered them any comfort. I think Pastor Brian Wolfmiller even talks about, at one point, believing maybe he'd been left behind. And there's even a song to that effect, warning people, you've been left behind. What are your thoughts there pastorally? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think it depends on the kind of dispensationalism that you are raised in, because I know there are all sorts of different kinds. You know, there's like a what's called a progressive dispensationalism, which is maybe a little more moderate in its dispensation, not progressive in the political sense, to be clear, but a different kind of dispensationalism might not be as, as strict. But yes, there are plenty of people, and I was not personally raised, you know, in one of those kind of dispensational churches, but, you know, I had a lot of friends growing up that were in those kinds of churches. And I certainly did see in some of those churches a teaching that was so focused on this fear of being left behind. And, and that became this evangelism tactic for a lot of people was, well, the end is coming, you know, and they had all these ways of looking at the news and determining that Jesus is going to return probably by this year or that year or whatever. And in the middle of that, there was this kind of threat of, look, Jesus is coming soon. And hey, if you're left behind, you're going to suffer the wrath of God. So you better make sure you're ready for the return of Jesus. And it's going to happen at any minute. And when you, especially for children, you know, I see children that are in these environments where you're using this very descriptive language about the horrible suffering you're going to face on the earth. And you're kind of using this as really a threat to bring people to faith, <laughs> or even in the worst instance is a threat to make your children obedient, which this can very much, depending on the church that you're in, it can very much become a very legalistic approach to the Christian life and, and of salvation to say that if you don't have your act together, Jesus is going to leave you behind, which becomes a kind of Pelagian approach to the Christian life, which is just to say, you better be good enough or else you're going to get left behind and the rest of your family is all going to go and we're going to be with Jesus and you're going to deal with all this suffering in the world. <laughs> so yes, I think that when Pastor Wolfmuller says that, that certainly, like again, I, I didn't wasn't raised in this kind of church, but it certainly resonates with experiences of people that I know who were within these kinds of churches. So finally here, walk us through, what does the Bible actually teach about the second coming of Christ and why is it intended by Christ himself to comfort believers. Yeah, well, the purpose of the second coming of Christ is, as you said, to comfort believers. And St. Paul even writes this to the Thessalonians. He refers to them as, as being chosen. God has not chosen us unto wrath, but salvation. The goal of this is to say, in even the book of Revelation, right, which is often used as a kind of scary book. And I understand why, because the imagery is kind of odd and, and I get why people could read it in that context. But really, when you look at something like the book of Revelation, what you see is that here is an entire book 
that describes the wickedness on the earth that is affecting the church. Right? The church is under persecution, especially by the end of the first century, you know, when John's writing Revelation. And in the midst of that suffering and persecution, it appeared to Christians, or you could see how you'd feel like this was the case, that maybe Jesus wasn't winning, right? It might appear to be the case that, hey, our Messiah came and he proclaimed himself to be king, but looking around us, we just see the church suffering. And we see the enemies of the church, the political enemies of the church, persecuting the church and and causing further suffering in the church. Well, in that kind of context, you can understand that when John is describing, say, the reign of Christ on the throne throughout the book of Revelation and describing his second coming, this is the ultimate word of comfort and joy for the believer because it says that the enemies of the church are not ultimately going to win. Christ is on his throne, and ultimately he is going to establish his kingdom on the earth when he returns he will return for his people he will make all things right and he will judge sin and wickedness and evil and wipe it from the earth that we are able to live in a kind of joyful sin-free existence that god created us to live in so ultimately yeah it's absolutely for the purpose of joy so to just boil it down then to what is the basic biblical teaching of what happens at the second coming of jesus It's really simple. When you get systems like the dispensational one, you've got these seven-year tribulation, and you've got that further divided into a a three-and-a-half-year period and then another three-and-a-half-year period, and you have this peace treaty with Israel that's made, and you have purpose for the Israel of Israel versus the church, and then you've got the mark of the beast being placed on people's heads at this time, and and then you've got the uh, coming of Jesus, and then you have the establishment of the millennial kingdom, and then you've got the different events in the millennial kingdom. It's very, very confusing. It's very complicated. The basic biblical approach to the end of all things is very simple. And it's simply that in the history of the world, the church will grow. We have this parable of, say, the mustard seed, you know, which is the kingdom of God, which grows into the greatest of all of the trees, the biggest of all of the trees. So the kingdom of God is continuing to grow. People are being added to that kingdom. God is working. It does appear in Revelation 20 that there is going to be this period where things do get somewhat worse for a brief time just prior to Jesus's second coming. But ultimately, Jesus returns. And at that return, there's a blowing of the trumpet, there's final judgment. And there is then the division of all people into the eternal destinies of heaven and hell, And the earth is recreated, new heavens and new earth become our eternal destination. So it's really very simple. We don't have in scripture this complicated multi-step process that eventually leads us where we need to go. We are simply awaiting that moment when Jesus returns and all things are made new. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Justin Center, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, The Doctrine of God, creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Problems with the Rapture. You'll find a link to it and Dr. Cooper's new book, The Doctrine of God, at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Cooper, thank you. Thank you. We will be discussing an appeal to Finland's Supreme Court in a freedom of speech and religion case involving Lutheran leaders with Dr. Poppy Rossinen next.
Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Expert guests. Expansive topics. Extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child.